Welcome to Directly Correct, a people's podcast with Cole and Scott. Today's guest, Melissa Stefan. It is, you know, it is so hard because my husband is a Commanders fan, and he's also a Nationals fan, and I am a huge Giants fan and Mets fan, and they both play in the same division. They're both rivals. <laughs> they're opponents of each other, and so we have like a divided house whenever each either of those teams play each other. Um, where, you know, we both try to like dress up our puppy in our own like team uniforms and we try to decorate the house. Like I have my New York Giants blanket and he has his Redskins blanket. Um, so we, we try to one up each other, but, um, it's, it's tough. <laughs> I didn't think about that when you told me you were a Giants fan, I was like, oh yeah, she lives in DC. Yeah. yeah, that's gotta yeah. Be fun. And actually here in DC, um, we have a lot of Cowboys fans too. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. I can see you've already infil- infiltrated the West Coast over there. <laughs> yeah. I was walking around DC some time ago and uh, I went to the University of Texas and I was wearing like a University of Texas shirt. I could not believe the number of people that came up to me and like hook them and like, I'm a Longhorn too. Like, I guess they just migrate out to DC for whatever yeah. reason. If you ever ask somebody who is in DC where they're from, 99% of the time, it will not be DC. Um, everyone's come from somewhere else when you're living in the DC area. Well, so how, how did you, um, well, first, I guess, how did you come to the DC area? And then how did you get involved in people analytics in the first place? Yeah, so I came in 2006 for college. I went to the George Washington University because I knew I wanted to be somehow involved in government. Um, And so when I graduated college, I applied to a bunch of jobs at at the Department of Homeland Security. I'm I'm originally obviously from the New York area being a Giants and Mets fan. And so when 9-11 happened, that was a really kind of defining moment in my life. And I knew I wanted to find some line of work where I could be sure I could help in some way that I, you know, preventing things like that from happening again. So um, I studied international affairs and, and national security. And I joined the Department of Homeland Security right out of college. And I've been there since 2010. And um, I kind of moved around a lot in at, at Customs and Border Protection where I, where I started. Um, and I moved around a lot doing a whole bunch of different things. And I kind of landed myself um, in uh, working for somebody who was asked to go and help fix our hiring crisis. So in 2015, we had a big issue. We were given money from Congress to hire more CBP officers, and we were kind of failing to do that. And so we were asked to go look into what was going on there, and she took me with her. And we started to realize that we didn't really have a good any good data to tell us what was happening. So if you asked five different people, um, you know, how many applicants does it take to get one person on board? You got eight different answers and it changed based on the day I felt like. Um, So we realized we really needed to do some really good data analytic works, uh, work when it came to people analytics and people related processes. That's super surprising because like when I think about the government, it's like nothing but bureaucracy and data and just like redundant processes, et cetera. But you're saying that despite all these uh, uh, sources, there wasn't data on how to hire people? 
Well, I wouldn't say there wasn't data. I think there was so, we have so much data. It just really at the time, um, we hadn't had a problem before. And typically when you don't have a problem doing something, you don't spend a whole lot of time wondering how that's going. Um, oh yeah, know, yeah. absolutely. So, so we had a lot of data. Um, there wasn't a lot of business rules around the data. Um, so we had to build a lot of that, especially around the HR pieces. So when it comes to some of the operational pieces of the CVP mission, tons and tons of data, really well organized, really well analyzed. Um, but when it came to more of those, the people analytics piece and the workforce, it really wasn't a big thing at the time. And other organizations weren't really doing it either because we tried to reach out across uh, organizational lines to say, hey, who knows how to do this? And we really didn't get good, um, any, any really good insights into other organizations that were successful. So we really had to kind of start from scratch. Well, I'm, I'm really glad you're here, Melissa. And in one of our early episodes, Scott and I were talking about what people analytics would look like at the federal government level or really any level of government because we didn't yes. really know anyone who did it and we didn't really have any experience doing it ourselves. And so I reached out to a few folks and graciously you got back to me about uh, coming on the podcast, but I wanted to introduce you really quickly. Um, so Melissa Stefko, uh, she has been with U.S. Customs and Border Protection for the past 13 years. She's currently the Deputy Executive Director of PPAE, which, by the way, was a big promotion. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Ooh. And then uh, the PPAE stands for Planning, Program Analysis, and Evaluation within the CBP's HR organization. And in this role, you oversee over 170 federal, con uh, federal and contractor staff and is responsible for enabling uh, to build the, and sustain the mission readiness of the workforce um, using workforce assessments and evaluation conducted by our psychologists, people analytics, HRIT, strategic planning and budget formulation, as well as some business process automation and transformation. So a whole mouthful there. But yeah. I think, and I may be wrong about this, but I think, Melissa, and I didn't realize when this when we first started talking, you've got the biggest span of influence of any guests that we've had on the podcast, <laughs> 170 people. That's incredible. So yeah, I don't know how you lot. do it all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Um, it helps when you have really good people supporting you and really good people that you work for. Um, but it is it is a huge um, portfolio. You know, our HR organization is 700 people, uh, just feds, feds alone, 700 good night. feds. Huge, right, for an HR organization. But we support a workforce of about 64,000. So, you know, and our mission at CVP is so dynamic um, and each organization has different challenges, um, different people related challenges. So it became really apparent that we had to really establish a, an effective and efficient people analytics organization to support the dynamic and evolving nature of the workforce. So how, how do you stand up a people analytics function in the federal government? This is actually the big question that we had like, how do you even do this in the government? Yeah, so we had a burning platform and a burning platform is great. It's not great, but it's great when you want to start something new, um, especially in the government. It's really hard to get funding. There's just so many different priorities that people have um, that when you're trying to stand up a mission support function in really a, a law enforcement organization, 
you really kind of have to have that burning platform. And we did. And it was that we really couldn't hire people. And we needed the data. We needed the data to tell us what was going on. Where were the bottlenecks? We had a 12-step law enforcement hiring process. Where were things going wrong? Um, so we had to have that data. Um, and as we started to develop the data for hiring, and we started to resolve some of the issues through that data analytics efforts, um, we started to realize, hey, hiring is probably not the only area we need to do this. We need to look at our disciplinary process. We need to look at our workforce safety and resiliency processes. Um, there were just so many different areas that we started to realize how impactful the data could be. And fortunately, because of the work we were able to do with hiring, our leadership started to really recognize the value of people analytics, and they really started to invest there. So that's how we really started. Um, you know, sounds easy now, but at the time, getting funding, <laughs> hiring people, not so easy. So um, it was. It's good that we've come such a long way. It, it's a it's a long road, and uh, I'm so glad to hear like sort of like these parallels. You hear people in private industry talk about, well, you need senior support, and like you're going through the exact sort of things. But like with that said, what kind of issues are inherent to government work that uh, perhaps people in the private industry don't deal with or have to deal with differently? Yeah. So I would say kind of one of our biggest issues, and it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing for the sake of our workforce and for the public. Bad thing, if you're really into data analytics, is privacy concerns, right? Oh, so, yeah. Yep. Public entities often can, can track their employees across the different websites. They can track applicants however they want to track them um, as they start to go using like Google Analytics and things like that as they go through the hiring process. We can't really do that. We have to be very cognizant of our employees and of the public's um, you know, privacy. So we have a lot of limitations when it comes to what data we can mine, what data we can use, what data we can look at at the individual level, what data we have to look at at the aggregate level. And it does tend to limit some of you know, the in-depth analysis that we would just love to do. Um, but it's important, right? We, we are you know, making sure that people feel secure and safe and that they know that their private information is not being used for anything other than what it's intended to be used for. So I would say that's a huge challenge. The other huge challenge is staffing. And this is, I'm sure you've heard this from everybody. Everyone's having challenges hiring these really, really talented people. But in the government, we don't get to set really how much we pay people. Um, you are on a graded scale. So at the on a, on a general salary kind of way, um, we have grades starting at a one, which is like a high school intern usually, all the way to a GS-15. Um, and those are your senior managers until you get to your senior executive leaders. Um, and so you really don't have too much wiggle room uh, if you're on the GS system to offer people different salaries. There's some, there's some wiggle room, but when you're really, you know, when you know you need to hire kind of like your mid-level GS-13 employee, yeah. there's a minimum and maximum salary for that. And if somebody else can pay that employee for the same skill set way more than you can, it does start to become a little bit of an uphill battle that you have to get creative around resolving. And from like a people's perspective, like you're now talking about like a restricted range and your insights that you can draw and you can perhaps do all sorts of other corrections on the back end, et cetera. Yep. Uh, so like you really need like a really good workforce IO group behind you to do this. It sounds like you do. We do. Yeah. So, so we have um, in, in my organization now, which is one of the really exciting things about the new job I have, because I used to oversee the, the analytics portion, right? The people analytics mm -hmm. portion. 
And in my new role, I not only oversee the analytics portion, but I oversee a group of very, very talented IO psychologists, um, as well as our entire HRIT uh, organization. So everyone doing the, the data architecture, uh, data migration, data integrations. Um, we're replatforming our HR platform right now, actually, into a cloud-based system. So I get to kind of see the whole people data analytics life cycle if you will all uh, those so data engineers all those data engineers give them all the love because they are lifesavers definitely they are they are for sure well so that that's a really interesting and i imagine useful perspective to have melissa in the sense that there's not much that's outside of your purview would you say that um I don't know. Do you like do you like the structure that you have now and the ability to kind of influence things from end to end? Or did you like it having just a more focused people analytics team? And are there kind of different pros and cons to both? Um, I would say there are different pros and cons to both. Um, I, I think that one of the great things about where I stand now is really being able to see this bigger picture of understanding hey, where can we leverage our IO psychologists to do workforce assessments or surveys or things like that to better inform the data? And so I get to kind of see all these puzzle pieces where I say, oh, we're doing really great analytical work here. We should really supplement that with a survey um, or we should really get you know, this segment of data out of our bronze zone, right? And really structured a little bit more so we can do more analysis there from the, an IT perspective. Um, so I really get to see that big picture and help connect dots that I might not have been able to see before just overseeing the analytical portion. And the other thing that I get to do, which is really exciting, is it's not just about structuring the data, doing the assessments, and doing the, the data analysis, but we also have a portion of our shop that actually does business process re-engineering and automation. So we get to present kind of like, here's what the data says the problem is, but also here's what we think we can do for you as a solution. And then we would actually lead that solution. So a lot of the times it's kind of that low code, high speed, um, whether it's UI path or power apps, some way for us to actually implement a solution so that we're not just presenting the data, but it's like data plus here's the thing that the data told us would make it better and we're going to make it better for you. I don't know. I'm super impressed by that. Like, um, I don't know, you, you kind of, like my two impressions of government, one is formed by like the show House of Cards on Netflix. Which, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> you can tell me how accurate that is or not, but the other is just like, you know, generically you go to like the DMV or something like this and like, wow, this isn't working out too well. And so I, I'm extremely impressed by what you all are doing. I'm wondering, from from talking to you before, Melissa, you, you kind of seem like somewhat of a government soothsayer of the ability to influence things and get them to go the direction you wanted them to go. Do you have any like tips and tricks for how to effectively navigate a career in the federal government or to get money through the budget process or any kind of like, I don't know, tips of the trade that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I think in terms of getting money through the budget process, our budget process really begins a good five to seven years before the actual year of execution happens. Oh, um, so you have to, yeah, so you really have to be thinking thinking ahead, right? Where do you want to be in that time? Um, for example, right now we're putting together a budget not for 23 or 24, 
but we're looking at 25 all the way through FY30, right? That's where we're looking now to putting a budget together. So you have to kind of think ahead a little bit when it comes to what do you want to be able to do in the future, um, which could be really challenging for people, especially when you know, you're know you just trying to figure out what you're going to do tomorrow, right? What next year looks like, let alone a few years from now. Um, but with that said, I think... Um, providing a value proposition, right? Like really showing what you're worth and what you can do, I think really helps to get you funding, right? So a lot of what we do when we deploy our different bots or when we do our analytics, what we end up finding is we can save a lot of man hours. And that's a, that's a huge force multiplier, right? So, so giving my organization an extra person or an extra million dollars for a contract, right? Or, or a, a tool, um, sometimes that can save other organizations within our HR organization, five people and $10 million, right? Because we can find ways to do things faster and more efficient. So really providing that value proposition is incredibly important. And of course, the way that you deliver information is really important. So when I go into a meeting with senior leadership, I don't try to tell them about the chi-squared analysis that we just did and how to solve for the oh why not <laughs> well right because because that's not that's not what they want to hear right they want they want to know like tell me what's going on tell me in a way that it makes it actionable um and and tell me how to fix it right what are, what should i be doing and so my thought process whenever i brief whether it be members of congress whether it be um, senior leadership at the dhs or cbp level is always what is the story right how do i tell how do i deliver this data in terms of a real story and not just different data points and how do i differentiate for them the difference between data that's interesting and data that's useful right and then how to act on that useful information and i think if you get into the habit of doing that enough they become really reliant upon having this data and not making decisions without the data. And that's really where we've gotten to as an organization at CBP. It's something I'm incredibly proud of. Um, you know, leadership isn't really making feel uh, making decisions based on feelings or based on anecdotal stories that they're hearing. They really do come to us and they ask us to do analytics so that we're making really well-informed and data-driven decisions. So, so hold up. Did you just say like you testify in front of Congress? Is that what you I did said? not testify. I did not testify oh. in front of Congress. Not me. Um, <laughs> supervisors of mine have in the past and I've helped them write their testimonies and prepare. But I have briefed members of Congress um, and I've briefed plenty of staff level congressional committees and congressional offices um, because this was such when we were trying to figure out the hiring situation, it was such a hot topic. Um, for almost, you know, everybody, whether the the congressional um, the congressional member um, had a very busy airport and the wait times were too high, and that's what we do, right? We process um, yeah. international flights, right? Or whether it was a border, somebody somebody who had a congressional district at the border, or whether they just had constituents that were trying to apply to our jobs and they weren't finding that they were successful or they were finding the process was taking too long. We had a ton of congressional interest on what was happening with our hiring process. Um, so so we had a, we spent a lot of time on the Hill. I think there was a period in my career um, where I was going up on the Hill like once or twice a week. It sounds absolutely terrifying. Hopefully we, we didn't create like a uh, sort of high stress environment that you're actually used to. 
No, but, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it, it actually was great to be able to go and talk to influential and important people. Oh, I imagine. And you know your stuff. Like you're like, this is the data. This this is the data, and we 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 come here transparent with what the data says, and this is just the story. Well, I'm just glad that you guys are keeping those rowdy Canadians at the border under control. So thank you so much. Um, but I'm wondering, one of the things that I thought was so interesting that you mentioned before, Melissa, was about building a fun office environment. It sounds like, are you guys a little bit of practical jokers? Do you want to oh talk gosh. to us about that at all? We are. You know, we oftentimes, when, especially before the pandemic, you know, my folks were the first people in the office and the last people to leave the office. Um, it's a hard job. And we were, like I just said, we were up on the hill very often. So our, our we had these very political and high priority work streams. You have to find a way to keep it fun. Um, and I think that's one of the ways that we've also been able to retain people is by finding ways to keep our office environment a lot of fun. Like they don't want to leave because even though the work is hard, um, they really enjoy enjoy it. So yes, practical jokes have become a huge part <laughs> of our culture. Um, and uh, and so the one that really sticks with me is for so my birthday's in March it's in a few weeks, um, but in 2019 right so early March right or sorry 2020 right before the pandemic, my uh, staff decided the best way to celebrate my birthday was to go into my office and using wrapping paper wrap everything and when I say everything. <laughs> I mean, my chair, my desk, my computer, my lamp, um, the magnets I had on the wall, the um, my shoes, the mints in the jar. I had mints in the jar, all my challenge coins. They wrapped everything. And I, I was so impressed with the work that they did that I didn't want to unwrap it all, which ended up being a huge mistake because then we were all sent home. And so when I came back to the office two years later, my entire office was still wrapped. <laughs> Oh my God. That's just absolutely amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. It is amazing. Uh, like, so Melissa, you must be told, uh, like, no, quite often, like you got to plan for like six years in advance, this sort of thing. Like I saw someone talking about, uh, how to change your perception of no. And it's essentially like, if, if I told you that you were like 24 no's away from like starting a billion dollar company, how fast would you want to get that first no? And how fast would you want to get that second no under your belt so you can make this sort of progress? So as opposed to being like, oh, I don't know, discouraged by being rejected, take it as a, uh, uh, a motivator, a motivator. It's like a really powerful way to think about this sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that's great, right? There's really, and truthfully, there's no other way to really think about no, right? Otherwise you just kind of stop. You just stop. If you get no mm -hmm. and you don't keep on trying to find a way to stay motivated, you just stop. Um, and nothing great has ever been done by somebody who was told no and then just stopped. Um, so I think um, we get no all the time, right? We need a new contract. We need more funding. Um, we need a new tool and we're told no, right? We don't have the funding for it. Um, and so for us, it just becomes a matter of, okay, how do we get so close to what we want to do with what we have that people want more? And when they want more, we tell them how much more costs, right? And so that has really been the way that we've navigated no um, is just to, to try and do the best we can with what we have and make it so that 
people understand that when we ask for money or we ask for resources, we're not doing it just because we want more money and we want more resources. We're doing it because we really believe that we can contribute that much more and make that much more of an impact. And we want people to understand that. So, yeah. I love that perspective too, because it's, it's uh, not uh, the people that you wish you had going into battle. It's what the people that you do have that you go into battle with. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was actually somebody I was mentoring the other day, kind of a similar scenario where they had been having so many trials and tribulations because they wanted to build a business case and present it to the C-suite. And they had gotten like 23 no's into this and they finally got the chance to present to the C-suite, but they were so exhausted from having fought so many battles. They're like, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. I don't know. Does that ever happen, Melissa, in the government context? Um, you know, of course it does. Of course, people have ideas that just come too early for where we are from a from a thought perspective and a leadership standpoint and a, a funding standpoint. And I've seen it plenty of times where someone has this really great idea and it's necessary, um, but people don't want to change the way they're doing things. And I think that's one thing that, that I think government has a reputation for. It's kind of like once, once you learn how to do something, the, the response to changing it is no, no, we've always done it this way, right? And so, especially in the realm of modernizing different technologies and using data, not just feelings, but using your data to tell you what to do next. Um, there's a lot of, of no that comes with that. And it's really painful when you know that the path you're on is the right path. And it does, it does get really demoralizing after a while. Um, but what I've always found is things come back around, right? So even though maybe the audience wasn't ready for it when you presented it the first time, eventually it does. And I try to bite my tongue every time when it's like, well, if they had just listened to me a few years ago, <laughs> we would have been way ahead. Um, but sometimes these things just need to evolve. Well, like, how do you handle that? Like, if you have to plan, you know, five, six years out in advance, and we see the uh, more rapidly shaping technological landscape, like, ChatGPT hit, what, like, three months ago, and it's already changing everything. Like, how, how do you plan for this and, like, get people to, senior leadership to wrap their heads around, like, hey, guys, we don't even know what's around the corner, but we got to plan out this far in the future. It sounds so daunting, if not impossible. Yeah. Um, so part of it, part of it is, it is daunting. And then, you know, when you try to sell people on, hey, we really want to purchase this new AI technology or this machine mm -hmm. learning technology in order to do this, right? And it's hard for people to conceptualize that. And they say, okay, well, I could either fund that or I can fund, you know, another piece of equipment that's going to detect radiation. It seems like maybe I should like, since I don't really know what you're talking about, I'm going to fund the, the machine that's going to detect radiation. <laughs> and sometimes those are the choices that have to be made. Um, there are ways in our budget process where in the year of execution, you can certainly get more funding and, and it's harder to do when you're closer to spending the money. Um, but what we find is sometimes people realize a little a little too late, um, but not totally too late, that there's that industry is ahead of us. 
And when industry is ahead of us, especially in a law enforcement environment, it also means that sometimes the bad guys are ahead of us, right? And so across the board, we always wanna be looking forward. We always wanna be looking at what is industry doing and how can we kind of keep pace with industry? Um, and so really using industry standards as where we wanna be in terms of our standards, sometimes really helps to put things in perspective for leadership to say, if industry could do this, we also should be able to do this. And let me tell you what this will get us that we don't have now. Well, the, the irony of this conversation is a lot of the problems that you just described, I feel like I've got the same scar tissue from being in industry. So <laughs> it seems like a lot of these things are the same. We just may have different objectives. But I wonder, it's like, what is so, and I, I've wanted to ask this question for a long time. But in, in industry, you know, the motivator is always kind of like the profit incentive, right? What is the motivator or kind of the centralizing force when you're doing work for the federal government, especially in the people analytics space? Yeah, so I think that's such a great question. You know, for me and for everyone that works at, at Customs and Border Protection, right, our priority is protecting the homeland, right? It's, it's protecting the American people um, and the U.S. borders. And the people that work for CBP take that mission incredibly seriously. And so I told you in the beginning that one of the things that really means a lot to me is being able to come to work every day and feel like I'm contributing in some small way to that, to that mission. And the way that I get to do that is by ensuring the workforce, the people that are out there actually executing that mission, have what they need, right? I'm, I'm trying to do what I can to make sure that they're operating in a safe environment, using our analytics around the safe, safety incidents. I'm trying to make sure that we have enough people, you know, at ports of entry by looking at our hiring process and making sure that we're doing everything we can there, looking at morale, right, and, and employee engagement and seeing what we can do to enhance employee engagement across the board so that our really talented and hardworking people don't want to leave our organization. So those are really, did I answer your question that you had for such a long period of time? I want to make sure I answered it. No, that's amazing. And it, I imagine it's probably different with the different branches of government, but I, it makes a whole lot of sense that you all are that motivated with such a clear goal in mind. So I, I love that. But uh, I'm wondering, Melissa, would you like to join Scott and I in the nerdery? <laughs> I would love to join you in the nerdery. That sounds like a great place to be. Well, so Scott, what's the first thing we have to talk about today? Here, I'll kick it off. Uh, since you mentioned how fun your work environment is, there's an article, uh, I think it's an MIT Sloan review, essentially asking like why you should make friends at the office. So we spend so much time at the office, like you mentioned, like 10, 12 hour days at the Capitol Hill. I don't spend my day at the Capitol Hill, but I do spend my time with other coworkers. And they're finding that... Uh, if you have a best friend at work, you're more likely to stay, you're more likely to uh, be engaged. And during the pandemic, of course, a lot of people felt disconnected from their coworkers and this sort of thing. They do <laughs> they do warn that it, it can be a little bit dangerous and provide some uh, ideas on how to test the waters with new people. But overall, it, it's a good thing to make friends at the office because you get all this sort of uh, affective commitment, normative commitment, continuous commitment for the organization, but also your own personal well-being and enjoyment of the work. Just spitting out some IO psychology terms there, Scott. Bam. bam. Bam, bam, bam. Well, do you guys have... Do you have a I'm best sorry. friend at the office? Sorry. We'll, we'll I cut do. all this out. 
I have several best friends at the office and it's actually really funny that you you guys brought that article up because as part of our senior leadership development, we we have a, a course called CBP Leadership Institute that all- Can, can I interrupt, interrupt you really quick, yeah. Melissa? Yeah. I'm not sure you understand the definition of best if you have multiple best friends at work. <laughs> can we talk about this? No, listen. When I when I was growing up, um, I was I I was told by my parents that you could have multiple favorites because that was their justification for saying that both my brother and I were their favorites. So um, <laughs> I was there, there are multiple favorites. <laughs> there there are many number ones, but uh, you are the most number one of them all. Definitely. <laughs> Well, um, but but actually it is it is funny that you bring up this article because that Gallup survey, and I think it's like this 12 question survey, one of which one of those questions is, do you have a best friend at work? And we all submitted our responses. And this for me was a few years back. And I remember the the folks in my class that were from our office of chief counsel had the most best friends at work. They all said, yes, I have a best friend at work. And we were all just kind of marveling at that. Like, really, you have a, <laughs> why would you have a best friend at work? That's so, that's bizarre. My best friends are elsewhere. But I would say in the last you know, few years, um, that's something that I really, as part of my leadership philosophy, that's something that I really try to to foster. Um, because to your point, Scott, you know, when you have a best friend at work, when you have someone you can trust, it connects you to the mission of the organization better. It makes you more excited to go to work every day. It, it kind of, ha you have a much stronger connection. And so we do. I will say that um, I have gone on vacations with people that I work with. Um, I um, I know others have gone on vacations, right? You build these like very strong connections. Um, we go to happy hour a lot. We've gone to comedy shows together um i think of my boss as like my older brother we've been working together for a, a really long time and i could tell him anything and he knows he can do the same for me and so having those kinds of relationships at work i think more so than the mission right so the mission is incredibly important to me but mission only gets you so far if you're miserable with what you're doing and the people around you it's really hard to stay totally engaged in what you're doing no matter how how motivating the mission is but having those interpersonal connections nothing can replace that right there's no salary figure there's no mission that can compensate for really loving the people that you work with well, what's the secret like sauce there like a, yeah it's like an advertisement for working in the government like man, oh. i want to go well, I don't know about the whole government, but certainly I feel like in our organization, you know, I think it goes back to just, you know, really having high expectations in terms of work products, working really hard, but finding those moments to really um, just bond with each other. And sometimes that's really stupid. Like um, the Halloween before the, the pandemic, um, I somehow managed to convince my employees to go as uh, Dalmatians, and I went as Cruella DeVille to our organization's <laughs> Halloween party. I don't know how they agreed to that, but like, That's you know, we all, we all ended up having like pictures of that all over the office, and everyone kept their little <laughs> Dalmatian ears on their desk. And it was just one of those things that, like, you know, it's it's one link in the chain to really bind people to the organization and to you know what they do. Um, so I think things like that and just the way that we joke around with each other. So I told you about one of the practical jokes earlier. Uh, another one that's my favorite is one of the guys that I work with. We have those standing desks that you can press the buttons and they go up and down. So every time one of the guys that, that works for me would leave his desk, 
another one of his colleagues would, would raise it just ever so slightly. Just ever so slightly. <laughs> so by the end of the day, his desk That's was pretty like good. up to his face. It is yeah. pretty good. <laughs> I had to put an end to it when he came in with a screwdriver trying to fix his chair, thinking his chair was the problem. I was like, whoa, okay, we can't be damaging government property. But um, yeah, the little things like that just start to bind you together. And then, you know, all of a sudden you want to see each other outside of work and you do develop those, those best friend relationships. So, so according to Melissa, the key to uh, great team cohesion, dynamics, bonding is uh, minor annoyances. So raising yes, desk, yes. wrap, wrapping uh, your desk and wrapping paper, all these sort of things. Yep. Yes, absolutely. We say we kid because we love. <laughs> I, I just see, I just see this guy's whole life unraveling in front of him because he feels like he's losing touch with the reality. It's like my desk, it keeps going up and I don't know what's happening. What is going on? It was honestly shrinking. Yeah, for sure. We also found some post-it notes on his desk. So he works in our studio a lot and we found post-it notes on his desk that just read, you know, Phil can't even spell R. And just like little, little, little jabs like this really helped to build the culture. <laughs> it sounds like there's a great culture of making fun of this one guy. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's like rallies around. No, listen, every, everyone is a victim. Myself, most of all, <laughs> right? everyone loves to just poke fun at the boss. And so I definitely have the biggest target when I was over there. Um, but it was okay because I love to laugh yeah. at myself and that makes other people feel comfortable laughing at themselves. But, but I mean, really, the employees get to the employees get to say they work for Corella DeVille. So, you know, that's right. There, yes. there is that. <laughs> but during the pandemic, we, we saw a lot of people essentially say that they became lonely. They became lonely yeah. working at the house, this sort of thing. It makes sense. They uh, uh, have very few interactions with other people, but they're also reluctant to come back to the office as well, where ostensibly these sort of connections would take place. Uh, uh, is there sort of the same dynamic in a government agency or is it just like dictated? We're going to be oh, yeah. in or we're not going to come in. For sure. Right. Um, we, we struggle with that. Right. So what, what we found over the pandemic was, you know, we were really efficient at our jobs doing it virtually. Um, we didn't yeah. see any production lag. As a matter of fact, we saw production increase a little bit in terms of what we were able to, to produce and release in terms of our products. So when it came time for people to come back in, you know, that was a really hard conversation we all had to have. Um, and my leadership calls it presence with a purpose. We are, we'll come in from time to time when we have to, because there's a reason, not because it's Tuesday or Thursday and that's the day we go into the office, but because there's a true purpose of going in. I think during the pandemic, the thing that really saved us is we, from the very beginning, from the moment we all went virtual, we kind of said, you know what, we're all gonna put our cameras on. That's gonna mm -hmm. be a thing we're gonna do. We're gonna put our cameras on. And I will tell you, whenever somebody tells me that they feel like they lost a lot of that connection during the pandemic, the first question I ask is, did you have your cameras on the whole time? And the answer is almost always no, right? When they felt like that, there was that level of disconnect. So one of the things we did during the pandemic is we had virtual happy hours where we played games. Um, we found ways to um, like send each other things. We had reading clubs, like reading groups, book clubs. My God, I can't even think of the terminology. Um, but yeah, book, I'm a numbers person, not a reading person. We had a, we had all of that going on, and um, we found ways to really remain connected. Um, and I think that really saved us. I think that kind of saved the culture, um, you know, when we couldn't be in person. 
it, it, the, the having the cameras on is like so powerful in a sense of like you get to know your coworkers at a level you would never get to know them at the yeah. office. So like I can see your background right now. You got this like cute like uh, shelf ladder sort of thing, and I get like a sense of your personality. Perhaps you see like a, a person significant other walking through the background, their pets, this sort of thing that you would never get to know at their uh, on the job, and it's. Yeah. It's a different sort of window into their personality that perhaps is a binding force. It really was. And, you know, one of the things we really focused on in the pandemic, too, was not just about finding ways to bond, um, but also taking care of each other. So, you know, there were kids, there were people that had their kids home, right? They they had their kids home um, and they couldn't, um, you know, working for them became a really stressful thing. And so, you know, we kind of said, look, you owe the government 80 hours of pay period. Every two weeks, you owe the government 80 hours. I'm not your babysitter, right? You have to give the government 80 hours and you need to do that in whatever way is best for you and your family. And I think providing that level of flexibility and with people knowing that at that time in particular, their outside work lives really were more important than what they were doing at work. And they knew that we felt that way. I think a lot of people felt far better about all the stresses that came with the pandemic, trying to couple that with the stresses that came with work. I think they understood we had their backs. And I think we kept a lot of people engaged and with us throughout the pandemic because of that mentality. The, the only difference was you had to like mail them a stapler in Jello, right? <laughs> yeah, As opposed right. to just go to their desk. That's right. And we did, you know, and we did because there were a lot of folks that were like, we really need, they were like, we need a second monitor. I need it. I can't this tiny little laptop screen. So we found a way to fund that and to send them the monitor so that they have what they needed. Um, and I think even little things like that, providing people with the equipment they need, that can oh, go yeah. such a long way. Well, I feel like this, this dovetails really well with the next article that we had about what makes work meaningful and what makes people stay in their jobs. So there were, there was an article um, in one uh, in one of the business journals, and it was called "What Makes Work Meaningful and Why Economists Should Care About It." And and what they found is that you know why do people stay at jobs? Well, it's meaning that matters. Sixty percent of the meaningfulness at work comes from non-economic factors like autonomy, competence, and relatedness to others. And I know on the podcast before, Scott, we've talked about the Hackman and Oldham model of the job characteristics model. This fits very well with, with that type of research. Um, but the funny part about it to me was how low things like compensation and benefits mattered to whether people want to stay at the role and how little economists <laughs> actually consider factors like meaning in these type of things. So it's amazing. I, I, I know we've talked about this a few times already on this podcast, Melissa, but uh, I don't know what what are your perspectives, Scott or Melissa, on on the role that meaning plays at work. Um, I think I mean, like it's huge, right? So many people come to work for us because of our mission, right? They believe in the CBP mission to protect the U.S. and um, we get a lot of people because of that. I think another piece of that, though, is not just about what our mission is, but how people can contribute to that mission. So it's great if you work for an organization and you believe in the mission, but you also have to feel like the work you're doing every day is contributing to that mission. And so the way that we try to make sure that happens is by empowering our employees to make decisions, um, giving them the space to make mistakes, um, giving them the space to try new things and to try new technologies and to look at things a different way. 
And, you know, I think if you empower your, your people to do those kinds of things um, in a mission space that's really meaningful for them, that for sure goes a lot, a lot further than things like compensation. Now, compensation is important, right? And I think that that helps people make decisions about what, what kind of job they'll take. Um, but it's really not the only factor because I can, I can point to a whole bunch of people who make far more than I do who are very unhappy and would gladly lose some salary dollars um, to really feel more engaged in what they do every day. And that's something that we make sure we try to offer. And it's something as a leader, I try to do all the time whenever someone presents something to me or they do some body of work, I always try to make sure they understand how that connects to this bigger CBP mission that not only services the 64,000 people that work for us, but also services the American public at large. It is so true. Like if compensation were the only factor that retained folks, then people would never leave these high paying jobs. Cole might even say that everyone gets paid the same on certain level here. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a, that's another tangent. But what, what you were saying though, Melissa actually made me think of pond joint analysis. I don't know if either of you have ever had teams that worked on this, but weighing different factors of the job against each other um, so that employees can kind of say, here's what the employee, employee value proposition that would work the best for me. And then maybe even using things like clusters to build different personas related to that. I know a lot of folks are doing work in that space. Have, have you all ever done anything like that at the federal government or Scott, have you ever done anything like that in your career? Um, I, you know, I don't know that I've done anything to that analytical level mm -hmm. um, using cluster analyses or things like that. Um, but one thing that we do do is we do kind of take a, an inventory of all the different ways we can engage, you know, our workforce, both the CBP at large workforce, right? And also our smaller workforce just within my organization. Um, and so we really look across the board at what they, what things people want. And we've asked our employees, what is most important to you? A lot of the times when it comes to even just compensation wise, instead of a bump in their salary, they'd rather have tuition assistance, right? They wanna go back to school, they wanna learn more. They wanna go to conferences. Um, they wanna go to different training opportunities to continue their, their professional development. And those are not typically things that cost us a whole lot of money, but they go such a long way in employee retention. That, that, that's amazing, that's amazing perspective because like uh, there's sort of like a feeling that uh, your work is like your universe at some points like and like it's, it's hard to provide employees with like everything they need from like friends of the office to meaningful work and you know development all this sort of thing but there are avenues that you can take here uh we we have done some work at a previous company around developing personas around why people stay at the office mm -hmm. uh, or probably stay at, at a job etc but no, like they I, must stay at that office they may stay at the <laughs> office we're gonna we're gonna dictate this uh where like they will be wrapped your office will be wrapped weekly. <laughs> but like th this idea of autonomy is like so critical. Uh, have either of you ever had like a micromanager boss that just like kind of rode you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, I'm so, <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, we, we, especially when we were kind of in the throes of, we were going up to, to meet with the secretary and the deputy secretary once a month. And we were going up on the hill and everything, every little line item was so incredibly scrutinized. Um, we had, you know, leaders that just wanted to control the entire narrative. 
um, yes. and, and what kind of analytics we did and what they wanted our analytics to say. And that's kind of was a big crossroads for me um, because my goal was always to um, ensure I had a whole lot of trust from the people I was briefing. And the moment you start to manipulate data, and we all know you can manipulate data to say whatever you want. Um, but the moment we started, like, you know, we were encouraged to try to manipulate data um, the way that one person wanted it done or wanted what, what their story, want, what they wanted the story to be um, was the moment I had to say, I can't do that. I won't, I won't ruin my credibility and my trust. And, and I don't feel bad saying it, this person's no longer with our agency. Um, but, but, but and, and ultimately, you know, they understood. Um, I think that was really, they, they said, okay, you know what, if you're not willing to put your name on it, then I, we, we took a step too far. Let's try to regroup and, and make it, make it truthful and honest. And I do give that person a lot of credit for kind of coming to terms with it. But yeah, for sure. The micromanagement, we've all seen it. I think everyone has had an experience where they were every bit of their day was dictated about how they did their job and what they did. And that's never really an enjoyable thing. And, and it could divorce you from the mission. It could divorce you from your contribution to the mission when you feel like you're not really getting the opportunity to contribute in your own way. Oh yeah. Well, do, you mind, do you mind if we go on a quick tangent, Scott, about micromanagement please, here please. for a second? Do you know why micromanagers exist? I think it's a lack of trust. That's nope. my perspective, no? So I, I wrote an article about this a while back. I kind of came across this when I was getting Hogan personality certified. Um, it was about leadership analytics. But one of the things that they found in their research, and this blew my mind, I was like, why, why has no one really thought of this before, is you have to think what gets someone promoted into management. And usually it's being very meticulous and being the type of person who's a taskmaster, who performs well, who gets things done. And the funny thing is, it's kind of like the what got you here won't get you there kind of philosophy is yeah. people who are high on the scale diligence end up being some of the worst micromanagers. But the thing about it is, is those are the people who are likely to get promoted into management because they deliver results and they're very meticulous. But once they get there, they start managing their team like they would manage tasks before then. And so it's it's an epidemic of problems for managerial, um, you know, people that are trying to make that adjustment. So you, yeah. you, you transition from like being in control of like your total universe and then now below you're controlling the people below you to do Correct. what you would essentially do. Hmm. Absolutely. I, I like how you agreed with yourself by referencing your own article that you wrote. Yeah. Well, it's actually Hogan's work, but I, I, I did write an article about it. Well, and I, yeah. I do, I, I, you see that a lot, and right? So people that were really good at their job, at their technical job, get promoted, and they don't get promoted because necessarily of their leadership skills, but because they were just so good at their job and it was time to promote them. And so I've certainly seen, seen that. Um, I, I have also seen, you know, this, this instance where, yes, they know how to do the job, right? So they know how to do the job that now they're supervising other people to do. And there's a breakdown in trust. There's a breakdown in trust of, hey, I am now supervising you. It's no longer my job to do your job, but also I don't quite trust you to do your job as well as I can do your job, right? And I've seen that happen a lot of times. And um, I was just having this conversation with, with a colleague who kind of was struggling with delegation. And I said, you know, do you trust your staff to do the job yeah. well? 
And yep. she was like, you know what? For some of them I do and some of them I don't. And I think that's where I kind of start to micromanage is I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I give them this work, they won't do it the right way. And so that really does become um, a leadership challenge to, to find a way to train your folks to the point where you trust that they're going to do their job the best way possible. And the only way they're, they're going to grow is that they need to fail too. They need to like yeah. encounter a difficulty and either get over it or find some sort of feedback. Cause like no one is good right away, despite yeah. the fact that we think that they should be. Yeah. That was actually kind of the thesis of the article, Scott, not to make another. Oh, really? Yet. Yeah. It's like, nobody is good at being a manager at first. Um, but does having a bad manager make you feel like you want to die, Scott? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I've, I've had a couple, I've had like, like both ends of the spectrum, just unbelievably great managers. And then like some that have been just two that I can think of that were just absolutely horrific, horrific. Yeah. Like I'm talking like on the phone with me, like four hours a day, just like everything I do, like you need to like, Oh God, I don't even want to go into it. Well, we'll let's say this for a bitch fest in another episode. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, what else makes you die? <laughs> Sorry, I really botched that. Transition. Okay, I didn't know what was going on here, but I love this. Please continue. Um, so Scott came across this article, which I thought was really interesting about highway signs that list the number of drivers killed on a particular stretch of road. Like it'll say something like "drunk driving kills X number of people," actually lead to an additional seventeen thousand crashes, one hundred and four deaths and $2.5 billion of social costs per year for the people who drive under them, which I thought was just crazy. So, I don't know. Scott, do you want to talk about this at all? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, I think, like, first and foremost, like, distracted is distracted. But you, you, you could, like, just say, like, oh, it's just, like, uh, correlation equals causation. But they have, like, really fantastic validating evidence here so like how do we know that it detects crashes so the effect is larger when the numbers displayed on the sign is larger so you have these like bigger numbers that say like you know fourteen thousand people die whatever uh it, the effect is larger when the road segments are more complex so you got like a complex interchange and the signs right next to it the effect is immediate so like you see like a decreasing number of crashes as further away from the sign and it increases multi-vehicle, but not single car wrecks. So the effect seems to be real. I mean, there, there's a question of, is this just due to people reading this number or is it just a sign in general? Like if you put a massive fucking sign over the road, it's going to distract you no matter what. But either I, way, I, either way, people are dying. The data person in me has so many questions. Like, it's like, well, if it's because there's a bigger number, that probably means there were already a lot of accidents on that road pre-signage. So have they controlled yes. for the number of accidents prior to the sign? I just have so many questions. Anytime I read a study now, so data has like kind of ruined my life a little bit because now anytime I read some kind of study, <laughs> I just have a million questions about how is this data collected and did they control for other variables? So um, yeah, like now I can't be a normal function human when i read you know statistics well what's funny is i actually do think they control for that because they said you know some key lessons for behavioral campaigns because i believe this is kind of like one of those nudging campaigns to try to make people more safe is that after the sign was removed the impact did not persist meaning that people mm -hmm. quit getting in as many wrecks as they used to because the sign wasn't there anymore 
But the thing I love the most about it, and I think this is really, really relevant to people analytics, as they said, evaluate new policies. Good intentions don't always lead to good outcomes. And I feel like this happens all the time in HR and people analytics. And so we have the best intention in mind, but it actually doesn't lead to the outcome that we want, or it actually does the opposite of what we expect. Um, so ha have you all seen that happen at all in organizations that you've worked with? Oh, for sure. For, for sure. So, you know, one of the things that I always make sure we do when we present data, we tell, we tell our audience right away, is this interesting or is it actionable, right? Because I think the worst thing that can happen is you present some data that leads people to a conclusion and they start to take action on it, but you really haven't gotten down to the core of and or the root mm -hmm. of the issue. And so we, we've seen that we've done some analysis on, you know, gender and racial equity in the workforce. And obviously that's a huge topic these days. And we've done a lot of different analyses on, on that. And we're always very cautious to tell our leadership, we're letting you know what the analysis says, because it's interesting right now, but it's not yet actionable. We don't really know the true source of what's happening or, or here or there. And so we, you have to really make that clear because I have certainly seen people try to take the smallest bit of data and just take it to the bank, right? Like, oh, we've got we've to move on this. We've got to take action. And I, I applaud those people because they want to fix everything and that's great. Um, but you have to kind of do the due diligence of really getting to the core of, of what's driving the different numbers. DEI is like a really interesting topic that you bring up there because like you, we know the benefits of DEI pretty well, like enhanced organization performance, uh, enhanced innovation, this sort of thing. But like just adding, you know, people of color or like different genders together, like that's that's not going to benefit the overall organization. It's going to include influence the uh, perceptions from the sidelines. But you really need that inclusion aspect, like <laughs> including the decision making process, this sort of thing. So it's kind of like the same thing as like just having some sort of intervention, i.e. we're going to include, uh, pardon me, increase uh, diversity doesn't really have the impact you think. And then, like, there's other examples of uh, these sort of things as well, like uh, just from like the road sign perspective, I, I've, I've seen studies of like, if you stay like there's like a dangerous area coming up ahead people will actually speed through that area, <laughs> speed up to get through there, to avoid that dangerous area and the other dangerous drivers. I do the same thing when I see construction. It's like, slow down for <laughs> construction. I'm like, oh God, I better speed up, get past this construction. Better get through here. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Um, well, maybe what they need is like micro numbers, right? If, if it's really just a linear relationship between the size of the numbers on the sign and Rex, make it very tiny as people like staring over their steering wheel at it. Absolutely. Well, Melissa, I think you had a question you wanted to ask us. Was there a topic you wanted to talk about today? Yeah, and I think we kind of touched on it a few point, at a few points today, but really to, to just dive into it, you know, one of the, the constant things that we experience, especially, you know, in my organization, a lot of our leaders have been in the organization for over 20 years, right? So they've seen a lot. Um, and sometimes they, they really struggle in the best way, right? With the best of intentions, when the data doesn't truly reflect what their experience was, right? And so, you know, I, I've, I've had this conversation with people before when they've said, to, when we've presented some data and people said, well, I just don't feel 
like that's right. I just don't feel like people feel that way, right? And, and you know, my response is in the kindest way possible. Um, the data doesn't mm -hmm. care about your feelings, right? It's just data. It's just empirical information. Um, and so how do you combat that when, especially in the people analytics world, where you're really talking about in a lot of in a lot of cases behavioral things right and and what the data says people's behaviors are versus what someone's perception of people's behaviors uh, are how do you kind of combat the i see the data but it's just not my experience right i don't feel that way i don't feel like the data is reflecting what i know um what what have been your experiences with that um i kind of immediately do a translation in my mind of when they say, I, I just don't feel like that's right. What I hear is, I have a preconceived notion that I planned on <laughs> acting upon regardless of what your data said. And now you're trying to tell me not to do that. And how am I going to react? Am I going to fight or flight in this situation? And so the thing that I've done, especially in more of a leadership capacity rather than when I was an individual contributor, because frankly, this is really tough to deal with if you're presenting to executives when you are an IC, um, is try to model good behaviors, right? So if I have a personal feeling about something that I is getting invalidated, go with it. I think we even talked about this when Chris Castile was on and he was like presenting a scenario of like a finding that I know we all disagree with, but I was like, if the data actually panned out and said that, you know, it this is what the state of the world is, I'm going to act on it as such, even if I fundamentally disagree with it. And so, I don't know, I feel like modeling good behavior is the right way of going about it. I, I think there's like several elements here. So one, the, the data could be wrong. The data could be wrong. There could be an error in like how you pulled it or how it was collected, just methodological sort of issues there. Saying that that's not the case, that we've already ruled all that out. I think it's, it's it's a collection of data sources. So there's no like one truth necessarily. And if the say quantitative data does not match what you expect, then I, I would urge people to also get some qualitative feedback as well. Because like, once again, you may have asked a question in a way that elicited a response that you didn't anticipate, or uh, you could just be wrong. There's confirmation bias. This disproves what you would expect from the data. And which that's kind of like the magic area that that's that's where it's time to dig in further and ask yourself better questions. I think that that's great, Scott. And it really, this is why I feel like our field, and I, I'm assuming you guys agree with this, it, it can be really challenging at times because it's a field of influence rather than a field of, you know, one plus one equals two. If I present really great findings, then we're automatically going to take action in the way that I, you know, made my recommendation. And it just doesn't work that way. It really doesn't work that way. And all, all the data that you collect are essentially old too. So like it takes a little while to collect, say, survey data. It takes a while to actually process it. So all these opinions are already old in themselves. It may not reflect the current state that you're seeing. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like this has been a really good conversation. Melissa, you have been amazing today joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. I feel like I've learned a lot about the federal government. Before we give you the final word, Scott, anything you'd like to share? Melissa, I'd come, love to come work for your team someday. <laughs> it sounds like just like an amazing environment. How can uh, people get in contact with you if they want to? 
Yeah, um, people are welcome to, to email me, melissa.stefco at cbp.dhs.gov. Um, and I'm always in, or you can find me on LinkedIn at Melissa Stefco. Um, and I'm always happy to have more conversations with people interested in people analytics. And, and before we go, I do want to give you one quick story about, you know, one of the things that we set out to do when we established a people analytics organization was what we'd like to call save a life with data, right? And we knew it was possible. We knew that if we really could get to the, the truth behind some of, of what we were seeing in our workforce, we could hopefully prevent injury, prevent suicide, prevent you know illness. And, and we really got to, to really get our hands in on that, um, truthfully, when it came to the pandemic. And one of the things that we did, CBP has 600, over 650 locations um, across the country uh, that we where we, from where we operate. And um, we had to, you know, when everyone else went home uh, for, for after, you know, the world closed down for the pandemic, our frontline folks did not. They had to still show up at the borders. They had to still show up at airports and seaports. Mm -hmm. um, and we had to do what we could to keep them safe. And we actually, um, used different types of data models to model each and every location and each and every type of personal protection, protective equipment to make sure that we can calculate burn rates, projected burn rates. Because if you remember, there was a huge supply chain issue, like shipping oh, took yeah. forever. So we couldn't wait for someone to tell us like they would in normal times, hey, we need more masks, we need more gloves, we need more hand sanitizer. We had to know ahead of time where people were gonna burn and which type of PPA, PPE was gonna burn quickest um, at each different location across 650 locations. So we built a data model, we built dashboards to actually calculate all of that for us. So that not only were we able to ensure that each location had the protective the protective equipment they needed, but we were also able to calculate how much excess we would have, and we were able to share that excess not only with TSA, who was in desperate need of, of some of the PPE, but also at the time, New York and New Jersey was the epicenter of the pandemic, and we were actually able to supply hospitals in those locations with some of our excess PPE to help protect their nurses and their staff. So that's kind of one of those projects that just will always stick with me um, because that's a really good example of, you know, you think that you're just one little HR person that has some data and the far reaching impacts of one little HR person, or in this case, it was three, three members of my team were able to do um, in order to help save people's lives potentially, or at least keep them safe as much as possible while they were on the front line. Um, it really sticks with me today. And I think it's a really what, meaningful piece of work. What the hell, Melissa? Like you spring this on us in the last <laughs> couple of minutes? Yeah, like, like this is amazing. I mean, seriously, you drip it like the best part of the people analytics to save a life, a term I've never heard, which is badass, by the way. And then you tell like the most awesomest story after, you know, right. three fourths of our audience is tuned <laughs> out already. Come on. Well, you know, in editing, just, just, re, just rework it in editing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I figured I would just leave you with that because I started out by telling you, you know, how important it was for me to play some role into keeping, you know, our country safe and secure after 9-11. And this is just one of the many examples I have in my day job where I get to say that we helped do that. Um, and it's just, it's amazing what, what think people analytics, no one thinks of that as life-saving information and you know we found a way to turn it into that and we're really proud of it super powerful well, 
you you've got a fan in me melissa i knew i was a fan before the call but you you've definitely won me over i'm i'm super impressed thank you so much for joining us today thank you guys so much for having me this was really fantastic and i i really enjoyed my time with you absolutely well you've been listening to directionally correct uh people analytics podcast with colin scott and melissa stefko thanks for joining us today thanks guys so much as always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostic.